Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back once again to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Another wonderful October episode. I always love when we get to this time of year. I don't know why. The ooky spookiness. Yeah, it feels like in theme for us. Yeah, it's that that storyteller time of year. Yeah, like for two reasons. One, I think one of the places where like folklore is alive in a way that the general populace recognizes that most people would recognize is like upon us like halloween yeah thanksgiving christmas like there's a lot of like these like traditions and things that are like very at the top of mind like folklore adjacent at the very least you know i mean they are absolutely folklore but like to the to general people who aren't like studying what the definition of folklore actually is you know (laughs) they would think of it as such still too yeah because it is like the time when it when everybody's like oh let's start doing like the the crafts that we're used to doing let's go out to pumpkin patches for no other reason than just we understand that fall is harvest time yeah and like you said too with like ghost stories, urban legends, yeah, all that sort of thing with with Halloween, like those sorts of things start coming up as well. It's just, yeah, thematically appropriate yeah. for our podcast. It's a heavy holiday time of year because like we just had the Mid-Autumn Moon Festival, which I was, I thought that was so cool that we got to do our live on the Mid-Autumn Moon Festival. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> so before we get into our episode today, um, I wanted to say that for the first time ever, we received a review that made me just absolutely incensed, livid, livid, other synonyms for mad. Yeah. You ready to hear this? Mm-hmm. All right. New review title. Excellent podcast. Five stars. Jeff and Katrina are the perfect hosts. Not only do they make me laugh, but they share new and interesting facts about well-known and lesser known fairy tales. The weird ones are my favorite. This is a perfect podcast and would be even more perfect with more lore about Andy. And that is from Andrew M. Forey via Apple Podcasts on September 25th, 2023. Does that review make you mad, Katrina? Yeah, first of all, how dare you? (laughs) But the thing that makes me mad about this is that what year did we start this podcast? 2019. (laughs) Andy did the music for our podcast. (laughs) And it took him four years until he left us a review. Yeah. What kind of friend is he? What kind of friend and collaborator is he? Just kidding. Thank you, Andy. We're super glad that you like the podcast. We get lots of feedback from him, you know, even not publicly like this. And it is nice to get some public appreciation from one of our favorite people in the world. And I do agree. We do need more Andy lore, which we started developing. If you don't know what we're talking about, we used to have commercials. Yeah. In some of our earlier episodes, like sponsorships, quote unquote, which wasn't really sponsorships, but our friend anyway, Andy owned Mr. G's Pizza. Yeah. So, like, so if you know Mr. G's Pizza, our friend Andy owned Mr. G's Pizza. So we were doing these ads for Mr. G's Pizza. It was a real company. Um, so it was a it was a real sponsorship. In that, 
the company In that existed. it was a real company, and we were telling people to go and do stuff, but we got no money from them. But I mean, we did get Andy, music made. Yeah, I'm like Andy. Andy did our music, and so it was kind of a. <laughs> it was a. I feel like a very uneven swap because yeah, listen, like we got way more out of it than oh, yeah. than Mr. G's Pizza did. Because how many of the people that listen to this podcast are even going to be anywhere near that place? Not very many. But anyway, so to say this in <laughs> our in our ads, because we could just have fun and joke around, we always included some stuff about. Andy talking about and like basically making fun of him or doing something, uh, you know, ma- making him not be painted in the most positive light. We're in good fun, and he yes, appreciated it. Absolutely, was, was funny too. So since we stopped doing those, we've stopped building the story. And there was kind of like we got like a little storyline going about like what was going on with Andy, like how he took over the restaurant with like a hostile takeover, and how he got abducted by aliens, and like all sort of stuff like that. Um, which it would be fun to continue. So maybe we'll go back to that. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. But now our friend Andy is like a theater ghost. He's a, a phantom yep. of, uh, of the opera. Yeah. He and was so inspired by our podcast that he decided to become local folklore and just haunt a theater in his area. He is, he's a cryptid in his local area. <laughs> Which is beautiful. I think that is a beautiful piece of Andy lore that we have continued. So there you go. It's even more perfect with that little addition of Andy lore. So if you like Andy are a longtime listener and have still yet to leave us a review, don't be dismayed by my joking rebuke and joking uh, anger and incensedness at Andy for taking four years. I don't mind at all. I think it's great. We would love to hear a review from you, especially if you've been listening for a long time and haven't had the chance to leave a review yet. That'd be great. And if you do leave it, we'll probably read it here on the podcast. So you can hear your words coming out of my mouth. Just what everybody wants. <laughs> All right, so on to the episode. So way back in December 2022, we did an Instagram Live where we did some December divinations, and part of that was using various methods to come up with some topics, have the fates decide some topics that we would be doing for this upcoming year. And we've done some, and the one that we've decided to do today was somehow we landed upon, and I can't remember how, that we needed to do something beginning with the letter B. Yeah, that was the one where I had an apple and I was talking about how women would um, like twist it and say different letters. Uh. And as they were going through the alphabet, twisting it, whenever the stem broke off, like that was when it would happen. And it was funny because I started, I was like, oh, maybe we'll we'll do that. We'll do that too. And let me start spinning it. <laughs> and we got to the letter B. <laughs> <laughs> Just just immediately pops one up. of our one of our listeners pointed out that they were like if it was a freshly picked apple it probably would be would have been a little sturdier like the stem would have been greener mm. and it would have oh, taken yeah. m- longer for that to Much actually more. happen and because i was like how would you get anywhere into the <laughs> alphabet if it just pops off this easily I've I've done that. I remember like in growing up there were a similar thing of like oh it's like the girl you have a crush on is or a guy you have a crush on is like whatever letter this is or something. I remember that being a thing. And I do remember those taking a while sometimes. It depends on the apple, you know. I used to wonder about like the he loves me, he loves me not, like flowers. Because I would think to myself, oh, well, if you grab like a flower that has like five petals or like a known amount of petals, then you can already kind of guess how it's going to end and you can make it end the way that you want it to end. 
And I didn't realize right. that like people would normally do those with like flowers that had a substantial amount of petals on them, like chrysanthemums yeah. <laughs> or even like roses, <laughs> which like you can't uh-huh. tell how far in. You can't even tell. Yeah. Cause they're so layered. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, some more divination methods for us. But yeah, so this one just fell off immediately at at the B. So we're doing something with B. And I'm not going to lie. I'm going to tell you right now, straightforward. This is kind of a cheat. But the way that this is a B is, I'm going to subtitle this episode at least, Bestiary of Bakemono, which Bakemono is basically another word for yokai, which you may be more familiar with, which are a category of kind of, uh, it's so hard to define, but we'll talk about it in this episode. But kind of these Japanese monster stories that have gotten pretty famous like worldwide, especially recently. But even, you know, back in the day, whatever day that was, <laughs> I'm told it was a Wednesday. They were they were pretty decently known throughout the world and people were interested in them. I was going to say, I don't think that it's a cheat just because all year I've been like racking my brain for like, how can I make the bee a special episode. Like I almost wanted to just be like, oh, we'll do like Baba Yaga just because it's a, mm-hmm. that's a B. And so I actually love that you came up with like bestiary of Bakemono. And the reason I did that was because I started reading this book that I had on my Christmas list for like two or three years. And I finally said, if no one gets me this book for Christmas, I'm going to get it for myself. And I finally I did. And I decided to read it. And it is called The Book of Yokai, Mysterious Creatures of Japanese Folklore by Michael Dylan Foster and Shinonome Kijin. Michael Dylan Foster? Who was on an episode of Folkwise. So he's a friend of a friend of the podcast. I was like, why does that name sound so familiar? And yeah, it's because I, it's because I watch Folkwise. And yeah, so you watch Folkwise. So you've seen an episode with Michael Dylan Foster where he talks about this book, among other things. Um, And he is a professor of Japanese at UC Davis in California. And he writes a lot and studies a lot about Japanese folklore. And this book is amazing. I love this book. I've been interested in yokai for a long time. And one of the things I love about this book is he had lived in Japan. He studied a lot of things. He studied with a lot of like Japanese scholars that also study yokai. Like it's a big, you know, uh, topic of interest and study in Japan. Surprise, surprise to no one. And so he was accessing sources in Japanese that have not been translated into English. So you like you get bringing some knowledge into our sphere, a way that we would be able to understand that we would not have had access to before. So that's what I love about this book is you get an even better taste of some of this Japanese folklore as they're studying it in Japan. And he quotes a lot of these scholars throughout the years about Japanese folklore as it relates to yokai. So... I kind of hinted at yokai being somewhat hard to define. So in order to kind of illustrate a starting point, Katrina, I'm going to ask you a question. Yes. Have you ever experienced something like weird, kind of mysterious, that was hard to explain? I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind is just the house that I live in. And I know all houses make like sounds or like Uh settling sounds or whatever. But the house that I'm living in right now, I feel like every day there is a sound that comes from my attic. And I don't have like, it's not like a movie attic, you know, where it's like, oh, a big room where you can like store stuff. 
There's uh-huh. like a hole in the ceiling. I mean, there's, you know, there's a cover on it. <laughs> Is that just like a gaping, like, <laughs> hole in the drywall yeah. or whatever? Where I'm like, there's like a hole in the ceiling. Never known that I see hands coming out from, no. <laughs> like, that's like not the situation. You know, to access it, the only thing that's up there is just the, like, the air conditioning unit. And it's not, like, a huge, big space. And I and I know that it's small because every time maintenance men have had to come to do something in my attic, you know, to fix the, like, to, you know, do any work or maintenance on the air conditioning unit... I have asked them to take pictures of up there, and I've asked them if there's anybody that lives in my ceiling. <laughs> because for whatever reason, when I hear noises coming from the attic, like all I can think in my head is like, what if there's a dude living in my attic and he crawls out every time I leave the house and like raids the kitchen or something like what if there's a guy that's just like up there like watching me shower what if there's just a guy living up there and so i sound like a crazy person every time a maintenance man is like oh i'm headed up there to you know work on your air conditioner and i'm like would you be able to tell me if it looks like any anything or anybody is living up there and he's like anybody what do you mean anybody like you mean like like a squirrel or something? And I'm like, no. But he says there's not evidence of any squirrel up there either. And I know, like, there's the logical part of my brain that knows that, like, whatever sounds I'm hearing is probably just, like, shifting of machine gears, you know, like, temperature fluctuation from night to day or something, you know, like, stuff like that. But what if it's a guy living inside yeah. of the ceiling and then the walls? You don't know. And so you're trying to figure out, and so your mind is going to this like really interesting and kind of mysterious place. Yeah. That, that uh, example I love, it's a surprisingly perfect one. Let's remember that for later because we'll come back to it uh, a little bit. <laughs> I love that you're like, to start off the episode, Katrina, is your life weird? Do you have a weird mental problem? But I, I think, I would, I'll say this, I think we've all had experiences like that where something was like kind of weird and mysterious happened that we couldn't really explain. Like I know I have one and it's interesting because it's kind of similar to a story that Michael Dylan Foster, is that his name? I'm like, I'm going to get those in the wrong order. Michael Dylan Foster, which is similar. I've experienced that's similar to a story that Michael Dylan Foster starts off the book with to make the same point that I'm going to make right now. And I'm actually going to quote him. But I remember when I was growing up, we had this TV And the TV was like just really weird in that it would turn itself on like without anyone being in the room, without anything happening. It was really funny too. This is a completely extraneous detail, but like it had this little remote that was like, if you looked at it from the end was like a square. So it was like a very long skinny, like rectangle, rectangular prism. And you could like put it into the TV. Like there was like a little rectangular hole with like a little you know, cover on a spring and you could like push yeah. the remote into the TV and it would like just like lock there and you like push it in and it would like kind of spring out and then you could pull it out. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. You don't awesome. need to know that detail, but that's like what I think of when I think of that TV. And also the shape of the power button, which was like this little like rectangle that would glow like red with like a red line through the middle of it. And it wasn't glowing in any other places. But the power button is relevant to the story in that like the power on this TV would turn on all by itself. And like I would go and I would hit the button 
to turn it off again and it would turn off. And then I would start to walk out of the room. And as soon as I got to the door, like through the doorway and like the TV is like out of sight, I would hear it go like, turn back on. And then at the time too, like it was on like static. So it just like static. I would go back in and turn it off. That's so creepy. And that would keep happening. And so it was like, especially as like a kid, I was, you know, 10 ish years old, probably like I started thinking that it was like a ghost or some sort of like creature that was like, I mean, yeah. Messing with me. Um, Yeah. Poltergeist. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, this thing was happening that I didn't know how it worked. And it was probably something to do with the fact that this was an old TV that the wiring and it was like messed up or whatever. I don't know, but I couldn't explain it. I didn't know what that was. Even if I suspected that was something like that, like I still couldn't help but go to this weird, mysterious, like supernatural place with it in my mind. And so Michael Dillon Foster in the book says, like, when we ask who or what turned on the television, we're intimating that there's a living being or animated force interacting with us, even though we cannot see it. We may visualize this force as a monster or a spirit or a ghost or a shape-shifting animal or a creepy guy that is living in your attic. In Japan, such a force and the form it takes is often called a yokai. So basically, the definition. What is a yokai? A yokai is a weird or mysterious creature, a monster or fantastic being, a spirit or a sprite. That's the quote. That's so interesting to me because it is this idea of like our brain going to who, who did this or what did this as if it had to have been a conscious thing, like some, a living thing. It had to be like a living entity. Yeah. And that's like where our brain goes to first, which I'm sure that there's like, you know, an evolutionary reason. Like if we mm-hmm. hear like a twig snap, we have to think what's behind me and is it going to kill me? We don't think, oh, that there was just a twig falling. Yeah. Or like the wind or whatever. We think, oh, what? Like, so I understand there probably has to be an evolutionary reason. But that is such just a fascinating thing to think about that. Yeah. When I hear something a sound in the attic, my brain is like, there's a dude up there living yeah. up there. He's creeping around up there. There has to be some sort of being with agency, with the ability to like make things happen in the world that is making this happen. And like, yeah. you know, it, again, it's like interacting with us in some kind of strange sort of a way. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating. Cause again, there's lots of things like that, that happen. Yeah. And you can already see how this, Again, people talk about yokai being like really interesting and unique to Japan, but it's like there are interesting and unique yokai in Japan because it's specific yeah. to their culture and the world that they live in at whatever time period. Because again, it's throughout time. Like there's some even more modern yokai. There's some really, really ancient, you know, stories of yokai. But it's like those sorts of things exist in all sorts of cultures. We've talked about lots of things like this on the podcast already. One that's come up very frequently that I think we'll refer to again and again in this episode is. We talk about like, you know, sleep paralysis demons. Yeah. Where it's this mysterious thing that happens. You wake up in the middle of the night. You can't move. Yeah. And so you're scared and you feel like there's something or someone sitting on you, even though you can't see it. Or sometimes, and sometimes you do you think see you see it. it in the night because, again, yeah. your mind is thinking it has to be someone or something holding me down doing this thing. And then due to the way that our eyes work and perception works and the fact that we're in this like weird liminal space between waking and sleeping that we see these like terrifying creatures, which luckily I've never experienced that. Man, you also made me remember this phenomenon that like bugs my mom. Like it drives her crazy. It's 
when you find like a screw Mm. just in the middle of your house, not connected to anything, not next to anything. You can't figure out. It had to have come out of something, right? Like in theory, for there to be a random screw in the middle of like your floor in your house, it had to have come from somewhere. But you cannot find where it goes. And my mom would always talk about, like, don't get rid of screws because, like, once you get rid of it, you'll find out where it belongs. Right. And so, like, she had this drawer of, like, random screws that never went anywhere. And so one of the, like, the first apartments I ever lived in, I had just moved into it. And my parents had, like, brought some of my, like, suitcases in I mean, what was funny was some of this, the some of their suitcases were full of my stuff because I had repatriated to the United States. Mm. And so we had to do some workarounds to get all my stuff to the United States without having to pay like shipping costs. Right. So they had brought these suitcases, unloaded the stuff that was mine in the apartment, and then took the suitcases and like left. And after they left, I found this screw in the middle of like the apartment. And I was like, No, this is lunacy. Like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be like a person that just has like a drawer of random screws. That's insane. And so I picked up the screw and I just threw it away. Uh, So a couple of days later, my mom was like, oh, we're having to go because they were still in the States. She was like, we have to go shopping to buy some new luggage. And I was like, well, why do you have to go buy new luggage? And she was like, at some point in the travel process, like a screw came off on the bottom <laughs> of like this luggage. And there we have no way of finding it because it could have popped off like anywhere. And she's like, so, but the hinge won't stay closed. So now, <laughs> you know, we have to uh, go buy this like, new. And I was oh, like, wow, that's weird. I wonder where that screw could be. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's crazy. That. That's like, absolutely. So now I have a jar of like random screws. <laughs> You've learned the lesson. Yeah, and I've taken it from, like, house to house, like, with me, and it's just this, like, random jar of screws. Yeah, and that's interesting, too, like, about, again, like, the ritual that happens as a result of these, like, mysterious experiences, because there are things like that, and we'll probably talk about some today. Yeah, because I'm, like, which, I'm, like, which yokai is the yokai that, like, just, like, leaves screws or unscrews things? Right, it's going through, yeah, unscrewing this, like, messing with you by, like, going through and unscrewing items and it's that's a common experience i've experienced that too where there's like where did this screw come from and it's one of those things where it's like again if you think about it really really hard you could be like oh like over time like you know things getting moved around it like unscrews it but it's like at the same time you're like i've tried to unscrew things sometimes that are just like the screw is like so jammed up in there you know it's like even the screw is loose like it takes a lot of me wiggling it with my fingers to get it to fall out like how can that be happening all on its own that doesn't make sense that makes as much sense as a little creature being there and unscrewing them and getting them out as it falling out on its own that like it seems to defy the laws of physics yeah and and also if these screws are so important holding things together. How can I have so many screws and nothing's falling apart? <laughs> yeah. Cause there are other little yokai that are holding all your stuff. Holding together. Them <laughs> together. <laughs> so you know, this brings me to another great quote by Michael Dylan Foster from the introduction in his book. And he says that yokai begin where language ends, mysterious sounds, lights splitting through the graveyard, a flood that destroys one village and leaves another unscathed, a feeling that something is watching you in the darkness. How do we speak of things that are ungraspable, anomalous? What words can we use to signify things that evade established categories and seemingly refuse to conform to the laws of nature? In a sense, 
Yokai is nothing more than a convenient label to indicate a whole range of otherwise ineffable experiences that might, in English, be translated with words spirits, goblins, phantoms, specters, sprites, shapeshifters, demons, fantastic beings, numinous occurrences, the supernatural, and perhaps most commonly today, monsters. So, in short, yokai are a category that invented to explain these weird and mysterious things that happen to us in our lives that we have, that we struggle to find other ways to explain or express. Which is another interesting thing about like human brains is we don't like uncertainty. We don't like unknowing. And so it almost feels like by naming what it is, even if by naming what it is, you're basically saying, I don't know what that is. By naming it, giving it a name, by saying yokai, it it then makes it explained. And then you can tell your brain, oh, I handled it. I explained it. Mm-hmm. We yeah. don't have to be worried about it anymore because I have fig- I, fi- I solved the problem. Exactly. I figured it out. It's fascinating. And there's one thing, there's like a, a major point that I think recurs throughout this book is he basically explains like this process just happens over and over again. And there's some places where they kind of like trace it back, you know, through these steps. But it starts off as this strange occurrence, this thing that happens that you can't explain. And then through that, some sort of like vague unknown, like your situation with the guy or whatever in the attic, like some strange presence makes itself known. You're like, I know that there is someone or something there that's doing this, but you don't really know what it is. And then over time that gets becomes like more concrete and it turns into like a character, right? So like when you go and you talk about that yokai, like these, some of these have like very specific descriptions of what they look like and how they work and like sort of like these rules yeah. to go with them, which then leads it to one of the ways that we know so much about yokai is because of like, you know, for a, a few hundred years at least, they've been going through and like making these little like, you know, indices of yokai, like where they would draw them out and like sometimes – you, this is one of the ways that they know that that certain yokai were pretty famous because in these collections, like there would just be the picture and the name, and they didn't need to say anything about it. And then usually, like they're towards like the front of the book, it was like the more well-known yeah. ones. And it was like everyone knows it's a thing. We don't need to talk about it, but here's like this picture of it. Yeah, they're like here the doorknob yokai. We don't have to go into why we call him that. And it's like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> exactly. And they're you like, know, you go- know, because of his butthole. And we're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> There's a lot to do with buttholes in the world of yokai, um, or unsurprisingly. But to your point that you made earlier, like there's a quote, and maybe we'll get to it. It's kind of lost in my notes here because I, I, I plan on coming back to it again later. But it talks about like the ultimate thing is like when you get it to become a character, like there is some like relief that comes with knowing what it is. Yeah. So knowing that it's this creature, like there's some comfort in that. Because also with lots of these stories, like if you know what the creature is, there's also kind of rules about like things potentially that you could do to like defeat it, get it to go away, uh, avoid whatever is going to be happening, whatever kind of mischief that this thing causes. Right. And then also you draw these, they, you have these like images that get drawn and, you know, in modern day, they're incorporated as like characters in like anime and manga and all sorts of things. And lots of times what ends up happening, and you see this on the internet, if you look into anything about yokai, especially like in the, in the stuff that's in English, like we start to make fun of them. Like, oh, like there's this like weird butthole monster that has like an eyeball coming out of its butthole. And we like laugh about it. And being able to like go from this weird unexplained scenario that, that is kind of makes us uneasy because we don't know what's going on and it's kind of eerie and creepy and mysterious 
to making it there's a presence there to making it it's a specific creature. And then here's this creature that now we know what it's like. We can laugh at it, mock it, and, you know, be able to like psychologically kind of like get over it and get through the, again, the fear and the mystery and the uncertainty that caused this. Yeah. You know, in the first place, which I think is super fascinating. Agreed. All right. Going back a little bit into a little bit of history of yokai, we're going to talk about some Japanese religion, right? I feel like a lot of people, and maybe it's just me because I'm a nerd and I like stuff about Japan, but like have heard of like in Japan, if you know about Japan, like you've heard of like kami. Have you heard of kami? Oh, yeah. All the time. So it's like, okay, maybe I am just a nerd. If you're also a nerd that doesn't know that, but like they talk about kami as being like, they're like spirits. It's a word that means spirit or spirits. And they're spirits that basically inhabit the natural world and like they live in or they actually are like the spirits of like rocks, waterfalls, mountains, trees. Oh, actually, yeah. No, now I'm like, now that you're explaining it, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I've heard of this. Yeah. This is real. And it's like kind of looked at as like, you know, the sort of like indigenous religion of Japan is like this belief that every, every, not necessarily everything, but lot, many things around us have these spirits that are, that are in them or they, they actually are spirits or whatever. And so it's kind of like, you know, like a polytheistic religion in that way. Yeah. Very animistic. Yeah. Yeah. Animistic, uh, which is kind of even different from polytheistic because like it is different than sort of the, I mean, the, the temptation to say polytheistic, too, because it is a multiple thing. Like, And the way the Japanese language works is interesting, too, because kami can be either like singular or plural. Like, You don't need something else to make something you know, singular or plural. And so, yeah, so like there are multiple things, and they're everywhere. You know, They can be just in these local places around you, or like there's, like, you know, the, like Mount Fuji. Like there is like a kami that lives in Mount Fuji, or Mount Fuji is a kami, you know, and like they can be something that is worshipped and prayed to, but at the same time, they're not these, like, all-powerful beings like we may think of in, like, Western, especially monotheistic religions. Yeah. Um, and, like, as an interesting aside to that, to add even more confusion, like I, I, like, I know among Christians in Japan, like, when they refer to, like, God, like, you know, the one God, like God the Father, whatever, within Christianity, they call him Kami-sama. Which, so it's, like, Kami, the same exact word, and then Sama is, like, a... You know, like a, it's like an honorific like title, basically. It's like the great spirit. It's not just a spirit. It's like the great spirit. Yeah. And so people, when they think of kami, they think of it, uh, and especially kami worship, as being this part of the Shinto religion, which is like what people would consider if you're like, oh, what are the religions of Japan? They'd be like, oh, like Shinto and Buddhism, which isn't like religion in Japan is like a really fascinating subject. It was explained to me by a Japanese person when I was living there that like the way that people in Japan generally think about religion is like you know it's like you don't go to church every week there's not like necessarily lots of these like i don't know not that there aren't rituals because there are but it's kind of like it's not sort of like central to your being and identity in everyday life necessarily like it was explained to me like this like when you're when you're born you're born shinto you get married as a christian and then when you die you die as a buddhist because like shinto <laughs> has a lot of stuff having to do with like birth and there's all these you know when there are these milestones like of different ages and, and sorts of stuff like that. And, and Shinto also has like all the really fun festivals like that uh, penis festival that they have in that one city that has gone famous on the internet. That's a Shinto festival. And then the Buddhist stuff is like, you know, it's you die Buddhist is kind of all the, the death and kind of downer stuff. And then they just really like the look of, you know, getting married in like Christian churches of Western society, I guess. I mean, and then there is there. I was gonna say there is like with the um, like the Buddhist 
uh, death stuff, there is a lot of that tie-in with how many days it takes for like a soul to yeah to permanently detach from like the home, the fam, like the body, the home, the family. Like it's like this ever-expanding, slow progression of this like spirit, yeah. and that's very Buddhist. And the one thing that's interesting about Shinto as a religion is that there isn't really like one central unifying religion that is Shinto. Like there's no like pope or central authority figure like that. There's no like one text that everyone refers to. Basically, from what I can understand from the things that I've seen and read and were explained to me in this book by Michael Dylan Foster was that Shinto kind of came about as like just a way to sort of differentiate this sort of way of living and believing from Buddhism, which had a ver- very much had like a f- kind of a formal, more formal element to it, especially as it was coming in like from China. Yeah. Um, and he, he, he quotes an article by uh, Mark Tiwen and Bernard Sheed, which I'm butchering both of those last names, apologies, gentlemen, from the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies, where they refer to the idea of Shinto as, quote, a series of attempts at imposing a unifying framework upon disparate kami cults or at creating a distinct religious tradition by transforming local kami cults into something bigger. So the same thing of, like, you live in a particular place and you've got this kami that lives in the waterfall. And you may, you know, that's like right outside of your town. So it's like you may kind of worship this, the kami that lives in this waterfall. So it's kind of like these separate, like, little cults that would believe in these different things and the kamis that were living in the specific things around them. I was going to say very quickly, jumping in just to make sure that our listeners know that the word cult is being used in a very specific way here. Because that that word I know like colloquially carries um, a lot of different connotations. And so I know that like the one that you mean is like smaller groups of kind of uh, bespoke devotees. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the word that, you know, they were using and they're using it in this like uh, you know, academic journal in yes. the academic sense. But it's like, it's not like this big religion that's like the same across all of Japan. It's like just this, these different groups have the things that they worship. And that's how things yeah. like that, again, I don't want to keep referencing this necessarily, but like the penis festival and that one place come to be, like for whatever reason, like in that yes. area, that's a thing that they did for like celebrating fertility or whatever, for whatever reason they did that, I don't know. Um and there's and like throughout Japan and I was able to experience like different towns and things still have this element of like they there are things that are important to them in this town that you go to the, yeah. the shrine, the Shinto shrine at certain times for like a Matsuria festival to to celebrate. And it's like different at all these different places and they become famous in each town for their specific kind of a thing. And so like yeah. Shinto, there isn't like there is no such thing as Shinto in a way. Like it just became sort of like a conglomeration of all these other belief systems that were similar as far as there being spirits in yeah. in things and objects and parts of nature, which I thought was really interesting and fascinating and I hadn't ever heard about. And so how does this relate to yokai? It relates to yokai in the sense that you can kind of, I think, start to draw a line from like, you know, well, to begin with, like yokai and kami share this kind of element of like animism as far as like there being spirits or things like animating objects or creatures or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense that if everything has like some spirit in it, whether it is like a waterfall or a rock or yeah, the leaves on the trees, it makes sense that if all those things have like a spirit, like a a life force energy to them, it makes sense that then 
yokai would exist. These like yeah. spirits of things. And there's even like a specific type of yokai that are like inanimate, like man-made like objects, like household objects. It could be like a broom or whatever. And a really interesting part of this kind of like lore that is pretty common is that like when they are turn a hundred, like when it's been like a hundred years since they've been created. And also interesting about this is like they say 100, but basically as we've talked about in other cultures and stuff too, like 100 doesn't actually mean 100. It just means like a ton of years, like a ridiculously long amount of years. Like once they get old enough, then these inanimate objects that were inanimate did not have spirits in them. They gain this kind of like sentience, they gain animals and they become yokai because they've just been around for so long. Yeah. Oh, I love that, especially for like all the creepy dolls that exist in the world. Oh, yeah. I hate that specific example that you brought up. (laughs) I don't know why, like my brain was like, oh, well, when it turns 100, I was like, oh, there's probably a bunch of dolls that are over 100 years old in like creepy museums. And I was like, and they're all going to become sentient. And then I terrorized myself just now. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and creepy dolls aside, there is an interesting element that, again, is talked about. I'm not making this up, but I happen to have, like, experienced this, uh, like, firsthand of, you know, like, treating objects, especially, like, belongings of other people, like, with respect. Like, even, like, the, you know, when you're handing someone a business card in Japan, like, you hold it with two hands, you hold it out to them, and you bow, you know what I mean? And when you accept it, you don't just, like, grab it quickly and pull it out of their hand with one hand, you know, like, you also, like, use two hands or... The best example that I experienced, because I had like a little bit of like culture shock, going to Japan or even returning from Japan, like turning in my luggage at the airport, like the woman there grabbing it, taking it in like both hands, very like gently, deliberately putting it on like the conveyor belt, you know, like making sure that the, like the straps, like, cause it kind of, you know how they have like handles will kind of like pull out, like like pushing in the handle so that they're all like tight and needy and, you know, like taking very much, a lot of care with this piece of luggage. That's going to get, you know, packed onto the plane and then coming into like Chicago O'Hare airport and like trying to help translate for a Japanese couple that was having some problems getting something with their lost luggage and seeing these like two huge men just like grabbing people's suitcases and like literally throwing them like onto like a conveyor belt. And it was like, it was like, yeah, they might as well have been like slapping people in the face for how like, I mean, not quite that extreme, but it was like, it was like, yeah. Felt so violent compared to, you know, what I had experienced with that. And it and it, some of that plays into this whole thing about inanimate objects. You know, like, that's why you have to treat them re- with respect, you know, like. Yeah, not, yeah, like, not just because they're an extension of the person who they belong to. And in the same way that you wouldn't just, like, pick up somebody's grandma and chuck her. Like, yeah. you shouldn't be picking up that woman, that, like, old woman's, like, luggage and chucking it. Like, because it's an extension of, like, her. It's important to her. It belongs to her. Yeah. And so, no, that makes sense, too, that, like, if it's also a thing that is capable of having a spirit. Yeah. Then, like, why would you throw it? <laughs> why would you throw it? Exactly. There's probably some yokai that comes after baggage handlers that mistreat luggage and throw them That's around ter- on the conveyor belt. Terrifying. Uh, but there's this really interesting thing. So, again, tying back in Kami to Yokai. Um, like, they're very similar things. And so there's a Japanese folklorist and anthropologist named Kazuhiko Komatsu. And he has suggested that basically that Yokai are basically unworshipped Kami and Kami are worshipped Yokai. And the thing that differentiates like it that. is ha- the viewpoint 
of the person, the human being mm. that is interacting with it. And that is yeah. one of the key points of all of this is like so much about yokai depends on the viewpoint of the human interacting with it and that yokai are evidence of how human beings interact with and interpret the world around them. So like with all folklore, the folklore says more about the people telling the stories than it does the things that are in the stories. Yeah. So he, uh, Michael Dylan Foster makes this point that there's kind of like this yokai kami continuum, right? So on one end, you've got the yokai, which are generally like troublesome, undesirable, kind of like ugly lots of the time, like scary, uh, mysterious, lots of negative things associated with it. And at the other end, there's the kami, which are helpful, desirable. You know, they're things that we worship and we sometimes pray to. And another important point is that one singular entity can move along that spectrum depending, again, on the person that is interacting with it. Like there can be bad yokai that do helpful things for you. And even in the act of doing something helpful for you, might be doing something not so helpful, not so wanted, not so desirable to or for someone else. Oh, so like, for example, the guy that lives in, the yokai that lives in my attic. Yeah. If if I perceive that as a benevolent force, like as something that is helping me, and I start doing things to like honor that, it now becomes kami, right? Yeah, but kind of. Yeah, pretty much. That's the idea that they're that they're arguing here. Yeah, is that like it's really how? Yeah, like useful, beautiful, benevolent. I see the spirit and how much reverence I give it versus like fear. Right. Exactly. And there are things like that in other cultures that we've talked about before too, like these like yeah. house spirits. And there are, again, yeah. there's a type of yokai that uh, are like, they, they sound like if you were not seeing, saying the Japanese words and talking about like the Japanese stuff, if you were just to hear the description, it would sound exactly like, you know, the description of like a house, not physically necessarily, but the types of things that they do, like the house spirits. Yeah. From the, other the, cultures. Like the brownie, the tomta type yeah. things. Yeah. Where it's like, they can be mischievous and they can go around unscrewing the screws from your stuff. But if you don't respect them, but if you respect them, and you like try to live in harmony with them or whatever, like they can be a protector and like a blessing on your house, which is just so fascinating. Quick tangent, which I mean, it's not really a tangent. It plays in, but it's like going to sound like a tangent. So there's this other thing that is called a yure, which is basically the Japanese word for a ghost. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about monsters. And like, I feel like at least in American culture, we don't have much of like, we do have cryptids and stuff like that, but like monsters are not as big of a thing as like ghost stories as far, especially as far as like people that like really, really believe. Although I say that and I'm like, there are shows on whatever discovery channel about like finding Sasquatch yeah. and things like that. But, but Yurei, Yurei and Yokai are like kind of different. You can differentiate them in a few ways. So I want to mention this. So the Yurei, the, the kanji meaning, if you look into like the two symbols for it are like one that means like faint or dim and the other one that means spirit. And so yurei are specifically spirits of human beings that have died and yeah. like passed on, which yokai are not that typically. There are some interesting stories of like people that become yokai, but as far as I was seeing, there weren't a lot of those, especially like oni, which we'll get into because that's one of the main big categories. But anyway, but mostly, you know, yokai are just like their own thing. They come from these spirits, like more like kami, you know, these spirits of, the, of nature and of the world around us and other inanimate objects. And so these yurei, these ghosts, they tend to target specific individuals and they'll follow those individuals around, which is different from yokai who <laughs> like 
for good or for ill, target people indiscriminately. <laughs> you know, they're like, <laughs> you come across, and they, and they live in kind of a specific place. They have like their little home base that they like to hang out. And like, if you just happen to wander into that place, they'll come after you. A- along that note too is interesting. Yokai are often like associated with liminal spaces. So there's a quote that I have that kind of touches on this. So it says, one common characteristic of yokai is their liminality or in-betweenness. They're creatures of the borderlands living on the edge of a town or in the mountains between villages or in the eddies of a river running between two rice fields. They often appear at twilight, that gray time when the familiar seems strange and faces become indistinguishable. They haunt bridges and tunnels, entranceways and thresholds. They lurk at crossroads. So these things that are in between, and it's like another thing too, it's like in between like human and non-human, yeah. in between towns, uh, in between like spaces where like, again, talking about if you're going to one village to another, you get to a point where it's like, I don't know, you just think of like, okay, like there are police in this village, there's police in this village. I'm in this area where like, if something happens to me, who comes and helps me while I'm here? Yeah. You know, like that kind of like unknown kind of thing. Like, so those sorts of situations, that tension is a thing that often creates yokai, what you find yokai at these like liminal in-between spaces, which is really interesting. Also, also interesting in that quote that I read is another point that I was going to bring up, which is that another differentiator between kind of what we would think of as yokai and yude is that yokai, like it said in that quote, like to come out. I mean, they can come out at any time pretty much, but they kind of sort of prefer those dim hours of twilight and dawn. Again, those liminal times is not quite day. It's not quite night. What is going on? Whereas the Yure, they have a very specific time that they like to come out. And they come out in the third quarter hour of the ox. And we all know when that is, right, Katrina? The third yep. quarter hour, hour of the ox. If you were to guess the third what time quarter hour of ghosts the come out. And uh, ignore the third quarter hour of the ox. But uh, just imagine, if you were to pick a time that ghosts come out, when would ghosts come out? Sometime between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. Okay, that's a little too broad, but... You get points for being correct. Uh, so the they it's like two to two thirty a.m. is kind of what they. Oh gosh, said no! Here. I was. I, was I would think so that you might pick three a.m. It was useless, like three a.m. or three thirty, because they talk about that being like the witching hour. Three a.m. is the witching yeah. hour, yeah. So it's like I thought I was like, oh, it's it's pretty close, but it's not quite that. But and I thought that you might think, oh, you might go witching hour. But instead, I basically chose everything from dusk You're till like, dawn. Um, nighttime. <laughs> Dark time, <laughs> sleeping time. Um, yeah, two to two thirty a.m., which is like that's interesting. I would love to go into the why on that. Which I mean, as far as just like researching myself, because they did not explain it. It was just they said third quarter of the ox, two p.m. to two thirty a.m. It's just a creep. It's just a creepy time of night. It, they say it's the time of night, like according to you know the whatever believer way of thinking, and maybe it's objectively true. Like that's kind of like the darkest time of the night. Mm. Which, I mean, like 3 a.m. is close enough to that, too, probably. I mean, obviously, that shifts with the year and the way we measure time and all sorts of stuff. Time's an illusion. Doesn't matter. Well, it's not an illusion, but we experience it in such an illusory way. Don't get me started. Anyway, so our boy, Kazuhiko Komatsu, the folklorist and anthropologist who told us that yokai are unworshipped kami and kami are worshipped yokai, also had a thought about the difference between yokai and yude. And he basically summed it up as a square rectangle situation, right? Where ghosts are actually like a subcategory of yokai. There's a very specific thing in the way that like we've got yokai that are like animals 
that are more inanimate objects, that are whatever. We also have, in the same way that humans are a type of animal, we have yude, or sorry, we have yokai that are a type of, like that are human, that are human-ish, and those are, you know, yude. So basically in this situation, the ghosts are the squares, the yude are the squares, and the yokai are the rectangles. <laughs> but you know, you know me, you know I love a good square rectangle situation, and I love to you point do. it out and identify it. You really do. So, again, in this way, I mean, the that yure yokai thing, I think it was, like, kind of important because we have done an episode where we talked about ghost stories, and it's like, how is that different? And it's different because, again, of all the reasons that I just spent the last little bit explaining. Yeah, no, you're good. So coming back to one of these central ideas that Michael Dylan Foster teaches us or taught me through my reading of his book about yokai is this whole idea of like event and phenomenon becoming an object or a character. So he says, quote, thinking about the genesis of yokai then is really a philosophical problem. It helps us explore how human beings struggle to grasp, interpret, and control the world around them. When all possibilities in the known world are exhausted, you might venture into the unknown. And here's where we have a couple of examples. And I would like us all to mentally travel back in time to the beginning of this episode when I asked Katrina about a strange experience that she's had that was kind of weird and mysterious and she couldn't quite explain it, but she has her theories about a weird man living in her attic. Yep, it's the only thing that makes sense. Imagine that you are alone at night in an old house in the countryside and you're there, you're trying to fall asleep and you suddenly hear rattling sounds coming from the windows, the sounds of something like scratching against the walls. It's like, oh, maybe, I don't know, like it's the wind, is it? Is it just the this house settling as the temperature fluctuates uh, from, you know, being in the hot day to the kind of cooler night? So you get up and you walk around to listen more carefully and the sound stops when you get up to try to find it. And you like open the window to see it's like, was it something scratching with the house? You look out there and you can see nothing but darkness and you feel like there's not even any wind. Like what could be like blowing a tree or whatever to scratch up against there? So you go to bed and the sounds start up again and you start thinking like maybe it's an animal a squirrel or a possum or a man in the attic. <laughs> you know, so you get up and you, and you go to check the sounds again. This keeps happening to you night after night after night. And you keep going around trying to find the solution to this problem. And you can never find an answer that makes sense. Like every theory that you come up with, you end up kind of like disproving it or not finding any evidence for it. And you're like, there has to be an explanation. So again, going back even further and talking about how like, you know, in especially, you know, hundreds of years ago in Japan where they knew kind of like less about like science or whatever stuff that we know about today, which I mean, not yeah. that we're immune to this sort of thing today, as we've already mentioned and talked about, but it's like, you know, like you start searching for things beyond the things that you know. You're like, everything I know that could be causing this, I have found no evidence for. I've proved to not be true. So it has to be something that I don't know. Yeah. And so then you start thinking like, oh, maybe it's like, something or someone trying to communicate with me. Maybe this is like a warning uh, that I need to leave the house, which again, thinking about like stories that I know, urban legends or whatever other folklore yeah. we've talked about. Um, a message of comfort from someone, you know, from beyond the grave or, you know, maybe it's someone that's like haunting the house. Something bad happened in this house so long ago and that's what is causing these strange sounds. So then one night you fall asleep and while you're sleeping, exhausted from having like kind of stayed up late trying to find more evidence for what this could be you start dreaming of these little creatures that are running around your house and they have like little 
hammers for their hands and they start like banging away at the, the foundations <laughs> of your house. They're climbing on the walls. They're scratching the, the, the sides of the house. And suddenly you wake up and you know that it's these little creatures that are causing the sounds in your house. Yeah. Because you had this dream and you saw them. And so you decide to call them Yanari, which means house sounders. So you haven't solved the problem no. of what was causing the noise, but now you have a name and an image to associate with it. And so it's no longer this mystery, this unidentifiable thing, but you know what it is. And so, again, you can start thinking of how to get these creatures to go away. And so I just walked us through, kind of paraphrasing, sort of this like example that Michael Dylan Foster comes up with in his book that we've kind of talked about this already, about like that process going through of we're looking for answers. And so it's easy to see for us, like how we reason through, how we explain this like really strange experience and how that over time transforms into something that we can identify, right? A step further, um, Michael Dylan Foster points out, like, let's just say that there's in kind of like the culture, there's like this idea of this thing. I, you weren't aware of it yet, but you tell your friend like, hey, I'm having these strange sounds at night. It sounds like there's creatures walking yeah. around. They're like, oh, or, or you experience this. And I come to you and I'm like, hey, I'm hearing these like strange sounds in my house. I've been trying to figure out like where they're coming from. And you're like, oh, you know what? Yeah, that happened to me. That's a Yanari. And you tell me what these creatures look like. And all of a sudden I have that image inside of my brain. Yeah. That explains that for me. And then again, we pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. And then again, like great quote from Michael Dylan Foster. He says, in a sense, this is folklore at work. Commonly shared knowledge, lore passed from person to person that helps us make sense of new and unfamiliar experiences. And that is what happens again and again and again with yokai. Fascinating. So like in this example, and here I'm going to quote from like various parts of Michael Dillon Foster's book interjected with my own thoughts. So good luck deciphering which is which. But um, he says, so we can see here the process by which a strange phenomenon becomes a yokai and then eventually becomes like a famous character. And it makes sense too, because again, Michael Dillon Foster, we often speak figuratively, drawing on metaphor and other and other figures of speech to accurately and gracefully express our ideas or feelings. So when I'm talking to Katrina about these noises that I'm hearing in my house in the middle of the night, I may say something like, it's like there are these little demons with hammers for hands that are like knocking around my house at night. And it's like, I may or may not actually mean that or think that, but by saying that and putting that image out there, it's easy for Katrina to imagine. And so when she yeah. experiences something similar, she says, you know, she, she has this image and these words ready-made in her mind for what it could be. Um, so again, back to Michael Dylan Foster, the creation of yoga is a process through which fear, mystery, the unknown is transformed into something concrete. And then through that process of being transformed into something concrete, it can be shaped over time into something that could be illustrated and eventually even laughed at. Like I mentioned in an earlier portion of the episode where yeah. we start getting these like cartoons that you can then draw. And then we start making funny jokes about uh, monsters with, eyeballs coming out of their butthole on the internet which like that's not a something that i'm making up that is a legitimate yokai yeah no uh, i've seen the monster, pictures which i most people have if you haven't should i recommend that you look it up i probably wouldn't <laughs> you're like what are you doing on the internet if you haven't seen these yet 
Like, I wish I could give you the Japanese name so you could search that. So when someone comes across your like internet browser history, they're not just like, why are you searching for butthole eyeball monster? And you'd be like, I, eyeball uh, demon. Jeff told me to. And I was like, I told you not to. I warned you. And you didn't listen. So how dare you make these lies up about me? Anyway. I like how long you made that scenario play out. <laughs> So that was a lot of kind of information, but that I found super interesting. I would definitely recommend if you are interested in this sort of thing, going to the book, The Book of Yokai by Michael Dylan Foster and Shinonome Kijin. So yeah, definitely go to this book by these gentlemen. And they talk about other stuff like history of like the documentation of yokai, like over the years, different collections that they've been in, like historically, even talking about now, like there are these groups that get together uh, that, you know, talk about and celebrate yokai that aren't necessarily even like, you know, academics. While there are plenty of academics, like they talk about all these different ways that, you know, like yokai culture is at work today. So now, Katrina, what I would like to do is talk about some different specific yokai. Yes. And... I also have found some stories that feature these yokai. One of the difficult things about yokai, trying to talk about on our podcast, that we normally are very like story heavy, is yokai by their nature are like, there are stories, but there are lots of stories. Like everyone has their yokai story. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just like a story of these people, even more so than like, it's not like a story that we keep telling like, oh, I heard this thing, like urban legend, although that is... There are those, and actually there are some urban legend yokai, but I wish I never said that whole urban legend thing. But it is like, it is an individual thing. So everyone has their own story. So it's like, those aren't always necessarily like written written down or recorded or, you know, lots of people don't think that they're that important because like, who am I? Just Joe Schmo that had this experience or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um. So, but there are other like folkloric stories that use them as characters and, you know, demonstrate these things in an interesting way, which again is showing kind of like, because there's this phenomena that exists, when I'm telling this story, like it's this ready-made thing that I can go to, like almost like a trope or whatever, you know, something that I can go to to insert in the story where it may need yeah. something mysterious or something, you know, to happen. I don't know. I, again, I don't know exactly uh, yeah. how how it plays in that that way, but it's like it's easy to see how it does for me. It's yeah. It's, common it's kind of – it reminds me so much of uh, like the stories of the Tomta. Like when I was looking for – like – because everybody just had these household spirits that lived with them. And so they wouldn't even be these like full blown, you know, narrative wise, like stories. It would just be like, you would know, oh, the cow was healthy or somebody left this fence open or, you know, what, what, and it's like, oh, you either upset the Tomta, the, like the house spirit, or you did something and they helped you out. And they're just these little stories, but they're not these like full blown narratives. And because they were just like happening in the house, just these little occurrences, they wouldn't make it into books of like long stories. And so I think it's a lot like that with the, like the yokai where it's like, yeah, everybody, has these not full stories, but just things of like, oh, yeah, when I was living in this house, I often had problems with the light turning itself off. That's not like a full-blown story, you know, a beginning, middle, and end or whatever. You're just, that house just had a yokai that would, like, turn the light off every time I, like, got out of the shower. Yeah. And so 
they do appear still, which is great in stories. And so we'll tell some. But I want to kind of just walk through some of the more famous uh, yokai or some that were interesting and stood out to me. And then also some that we'll be mentioning. One, because they're interesting and stood out to me. And also I could find stories that were specifically about them. Perfect. So one I want to talk about right off the bat is one that we have mentioned before on this podcast, which is the Oni, which is a demon, also sometimes translates as uh, ogre, which we talked about in our Momotaro episode, which was like one of our very early episodes of the podcast. But I love that episode, again, because it was fun and about Japan. I'm a, I'm a nerd for Japan stuff. You, guys you are. Um, so Oni are commonly described as these large, powerful, strong, human-like creatures that have like colorful faces. You, the most common is kind of red. Like if you go into your phone and look for an emoji of like demon, I'm sure you could type in Oni and it would come up, but it's like that red face kind of like devilish, demonish looking uh, character. You, you can see that in the you know emoji on your iPhone. Even and so they have like horns. They'll like kind of be dressed in like like a loincloth or something like that, carrying a club. Oh my gosh, you're right. This is an emoji. Yeah. On the phone that like yeah. I've always been like, what is that supposed to be? It's supposed to be an oni. Yeah, it's an oni. Now you know. Because it looks like a demon, except that it doesn't look like you know like a right. a Christian depiction of like the devil. Yeah. And so I've been like, I don't know what that is. Now I know. Yeah. And that's interesting because like emoji, like a lot of them came from this. So there's a lot of things there too that like are very, very Japanese. You're like, what is the point of this emoji? It's like, it means something in Japan, very specific. But yeah, look up and start using the Oni emoji. Yeah. Like the people who designed the emojis weren't thinking about you. Yeah. But they wanted you to know about Oni. And that's why I'm telling you about them on this podcast. And Oni, they're one of the ones that are a lot older, like there are lots of stories that have Oni in them. And part of that is because Oni were kind of like, they're like the all-purpose yokai, the go-to yokai, and they just basically seem to represent all of the kind of just dangers that exist out in the world. Like you go out into the mountains, you there could be danger there. You know, things that are, could be a threat to your society. One thing that they talk about, they talk about like Oni being like kind of symbolic of an epidemic of like this disease that's spreading, like coming from outside of your town, coming in and it'll cause all this havoc. And then it, it also takes on this association of, in a way that lots of yokai do, but very, very specifically and very identifiably like this, like otherness, like this fear of outsiders, this fear of others. Um, There's specifically like this group of people who were some sort of like religious practitioners that lived kind of out in the mountains and they were out doing their like, doing these religious practices that were kind of mysterious and unknown. It was a kind of this fear of like, what are these people doing that we don't really know about that are kind of different than us? Famously, the story of Momotaro, which we talked about in a long ago episode, he has to go off and like, he has to go off and fight at this, like the island of Oni, which are like to the east of Japan. And he has to go out there and it's like this island of all these like foreigners and they have, they are some kind of threat to us. And during the time of World War II, this was Momotaro was one of those stories that was used as kind of like propaganda, talking about like, oh, we need to protect our island from these outsiders, these others, these invaders from the east, which east of Japan is the good old U.S. of A. <laughs> or the U.S. of Oni, if you were uh, in living in 1940s Japan. And here's 
another interesting way that oni appear. They are often parts of like festivals and rituals in Japan. It's especially one that happens on New Year's Eve. And this may sound kind of familiar to you, Katrina. I'll tell you this description. You tell me what this sounds like in another part of the world. So, well, it's like after New Year's, on this holiday, this New Year's Eve holiday, young men from the local community dress in straw raincoats and demon masks and tromp through the snow from house to house, receiving offerings of food and drink from the residents and chasing and scaring kids of the household. Yeah, I know that 100%. Sounds like Krampus and like yeah. the St. Nicholas's night and when they go around beating that was something that struck me so many times while reading it was like i would read something like that and be like this sounds exactly like something else completely separate far across the world you know like it's so interesting how these common things like you know pop up you know in different cultures and different settings and they're slightly different for each place but like the similarities between them are just like mind-bogglingly close you know yeah like how much we like to dress up and play act, like reenact the fright on our own body and then terrorize our community, but in a way that's like communal that it it's, yeah. it's not an, for some reason, terrifying each other is done playfully. It's not antisocial. It's connective, which is yeah. like wild to think about. Yeah. In these like small areas in Germany that we're doing, that had, you know, morphed these festivals. And then it's also like, and in Japan, they're doing completely different, no relation to it whatsoever, but just these vague similarities. So there's another one that it's like, it's sometimes kind of related to an Oni, but it's like a very specific sort of a character. And it's called a Yamamba or sometimes Yomauba. And it is described as a mounted crone, mountain hag, or Mountain Witch, which we are fans of crags, of hags and crags on this podcast. So I knew this was one that we had to tell. And it is actually a very well-known, very famous, uh, very common yokai that we have a story that Katrina's going to tell. But before we get there, I'm going to describe a little bit about what the Yamamba is. Uh, It's basically an old woman that lives in the mountains. And again, I said kind of related to Oni. One of the other translations is like they call them like a, a malevolent ogress. So they're these female ogre-like characters. And there are lots of different legends, folktales, all sorts of things that talk about this like very ugly witch-like woman who kidnaps children, who like terrorizes livestock, who like just absolutely goes after anyone that trespasses on her territory. Also interestingly, and in something that if you stretch your mind, you can see how it even kind of sounds like Yamamba, Sometimes the Yamamba is like we talked about before, more Kami-like in being like a presence that like helps you out, like more deific and and beneficial presence, as it states in the book. Someone that can like also help you and protect you and do also uh, all sorts of you know like good things for you. Walking at different areas of the line of you know between yokai and Kami, depending on the person who is uh, interacting with them. And I'm super immature, and so Yo Mamba to me sounds like Yo Mama. (laughs) Which is perfect. Like, the character is perfect for Yo Mamba jokes, which I think you should make as many as possible. As you tell us the story, that is just one story, obviously, of a Yo Mamba. 
Um, did you want to say what book this came from? It's called Folktales of Japan. Edited by Keigo Seki and translated by Robert J. Adams. I like that in this version right at the beginning, it um, has like some little footnotes and it says that the plot of this tale follows at the beginning the wolf and the kids, which is kids being baby goats, that's found in like the Grimm's Brothers tale. And that's absolutely what I was thinking about when I was reading over this story. Um, except that the end, <laughs> very different. So the story starts very, very long ago. There lived a mother and a father, and they had three children. So when their youngest child was still very small, the father died. Tragedy has befallen this family. It says, and I thought that this was very important uh, because of what we had talked about in the past and then a little bit mentioned today. On the seventh day, which is a very important day, on the seventh day after the death of this father, the mother went to visit his grave and she left behind her three children. Before she left, though, she told the children, in the mountains, there is a frightful old Yo mamba. Again, I had to tell my brain, like, don't say yo mama. And what's interesting to me, too, is that, like, yo mamba, they were used as, like, stories to, like, warn kids not to go into the mountains, yeah. which is, like, very classic characters in stories. Like, we see this all the time where it's, like, these stories are specifically to teach children, like, listen to your parents and don't go into dangerous places specific to whatever region you're in, whether it's, like, don't go near the water don't go into this forest. And in this case, don't go into the mountain. So in the mountain, there is a Yomamba. And while I'm gone, if anyone comes to the door, do not open it. Only open the door for me. And the kids, you know, all were like, yes, mom, because they're obedient children. <laughs> so the mom leaves. And pretty soon, the Yomamba, sensing that the children are alone, comes over and knocks on the door and says, your mother has returned now. And the kids, being very smart children, were like, well, hold out your hand, let us see it. So they like went over to the window so that they could, you know, see them hold mm -hmm. out their hand before they open the door. And I love that they're just like, um, they looked at the, the hand all covered with hair. <laughs> and they were like, um, our mother's hand doesn't look like that. <laughs> Hers is less hairy and like much smoother and whiter than yours, which <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And it's to me like the it's interesting because in the wolf and the kids, the wolf has to make its hand look like a goat hand. Mm. And so in this story, the Yomamba goes and it says borrowed a razor. I'm like, borrowed a razor from who? <laughs> and I love that it didn't steal it. It borrowed it. <laughs> Every like, intention I'll, I'll of returning it. Right it. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the, you know, the view, the interaction with this person that lent the Yamama the razor, I'm sure is a different story than the one that these children are going to experience. Yeah. And whoever let her borrow this razor, obviously, you know, is a good person, is kind to others and should, you know, be treated well. But is also enabling a monster, <laughs> literally. Anyway, so the Yomamba shaves the rough hair off the back of her hand. And then she took some buckwheat flour and smoothed it over her hands so that they would look whiter colored than her hands had before and smoother. 
So she calls out, your mother has returned now. And, you know, the children are like, let us see your hand. And so she, you know, she sticks out her hand to show like, oh, look, it looks just like your mom's hand. (laughs) Your mom's hand. And it says that the children felt it, which I'm like, just imagining. I'm like, why would you be sticking her? It's fine. It's fine. I'm like, these kids could get snatched so easily. I mean, not so, so easily, but still pretty easily. Yeah. They didn't just open the door straight away like, oh, yeah, strange hairy hand. Come on in. Yeah. But I'm just imagining if they're like reaching out to touch the hand, like even if it's like through the window, couldn't the person, couldn't the Yomamba grab them? I don't know. They're in it for the long game. It's fine. <laughs> so the children said that the Yomamba's breathing was still very rough and her voice sounded like, quote, someone rolling kettles down a mountain <laughs> canyon. <laughs> clang, 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 clang. Like. <laughs> Uh, and so they said, you know, our mother has a much nicer voice than you. So the Yomamba went and drank some water that red beans had been washed in, which I'm assuming is good for the throat. So an interesting thing about beans <laughs> continue is that they're the magical fruit. The uh-huh. more you eat. The less you sound like a kettlebell falling down a canyon. As the famous saying goes, there is something interesting. I don't know if these are specifically red beans, but there is an association with beans and oni. So we talked about this whole New Mm. Year's thing. So one of the things that would happen is like, uh, it's a different thing than kind of the Krampus-like situation, but still similar. But one of the things, there's like a custom in Japan where you like would throw beans around your house at the new year time and you'd say basically like out with the oni in with good fortune so like you're using these beans to kind of like ward off the the oni which i thought was kind of interesting that's what came to mind when i saw the beans in this story are they actually related at all i don't know but it, i just it, you know it again it stuck out to me but it just stood out to me it doesn't explain why it made her voice sound better yeah to me but interesting so the yomamba drank this water with the red beans in it And for whatever magical properties it had, it made her voice sound sweeter than before and like their mother. And so the Yomamba went back to the house and said, your mother is late, but she's finally returned. And that time her voice sounded enough like their mother that they let her inside. I don't know why when they saw her, they weren't immediately like, oh, no, we've been tricked. But they didn't notice. And so they went about their evening and the two older boys, because it was three boys, the three older boys went to sleep in one room as usual. And the youngest boy was sleeping with the Yomamba in bed, as was like their custom, I'm assuming because the kid was very, very young. So in the middle of the night, the two older boys started hearing, and this gets gets gross, guys. I'm glad Jeff made me read this story <laughs> to get back. This is the at story him. that you would have made me read had the tables yeah. been turned. <laughs> I'd have been like, "Oh, here, Jeff, you love what they're about to do to these children." So the two older boys are sleeping, and then they hear it says "Cory, Cory, crunch, crunch." coming from the next room, and they called out, "Mother, what are you eating?" And the yo mamba says. I'm eating pickles, which I was like, it's so hilarious. That, that, cri- that crisp, that uh, crisp, crisp snap of a nice, <laughs> yeah. crunchy pickle. Like, oh man, that does sound so appetizing. And so the boys were like, oh, please give us one. Please give us one. And 
Because it doesn't matter what time of day or night, if your children find you and you're eating a delicious snack, they're going to immediately demand that you share with them. 100%. And so this Yamamba, it said, and I do apologize, everybody, for this. So the Yamamba tore the fingers from the smallest child's hand and threw them to the other boys. Ugh. And they picked them up and they saw that it was their little brother's fingers. And that's when they started like freaking out, realizing, oh no, this is actually the Yamamba like in our house. And so the two of them quickly, and this was smart, they quickly got up and grabbed a jar of oil and left the house. And they climbed up into a tree by the gate. At first, I was like, why did they grab a jar of oil? That's so weird. But they, they it answered itself pretty quickly because they went outside. They climbed up a tree that was nearby. And then they poured the oil just all over the tree so that it would be slippery. Make it very difficult to follow after them. Yeah. So pretty soon, the uh, Yamaba, Yomamba discovered that they had escaped. It's a small house. And so she went after them. And what's funny is like the tree is next to this pond. And so as she was running after them, she looked down into the water and saw the reflection of the boys like inside of the water. And so she thought like, oh, they're hiding from me inside the bottom of this like lake or whatever, this pond. Yeah. And so she grabbed a net to try to like scoop them out. But then they kept, you know, disappearing because she was disturbing the water. She was like trying yeah. to scoop them out. But the, And it is interesting because that's kind of one of the things they talk about too with like the Oni and the Ogres. I think it makes a note of it in the the text, the folklore folk. What's folk, folk, folk tales, tales of Japan. Folk tales of Japan, where it talks about how like ogres are kind of known for being they're they're scary, obviously, but they're not super smart. So they're actually, they're fairly easy to trick in ways like that. So she's kind of showing that relation to like the oni to ogres in that she you know can be smart and like conniving and like very clever to find ways to you know sneak past and convince them that they're uh, that she's her mom, their mom. Yeah. That she's their mom, but then also like she mistakes their reflection in the water for them and is confused when she can't fish them out with a net, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, no, that is really interesting that it's like big and powerful, like capable of being mischievous, but not witty, easily like outwitted. So anyway, it says by chance she looked up. And I'm just wondering if this story (laughs) was told in like a different way or like a different time, if the boys started like laughing at yeah. like the, the comedy uh-huh. of it. Um, Cause that's how, kind of how I imagine is that she hears like laughter coming from up in the tree. And then she mm. looks up instead of it just being like, Oh, by chance she looked up, Yeah, but she saw that the boys were hidden like up in this tree. And so she, you know, goes over and is trying to climb up, but of course they've poured the oil on it. So she's like slipping all over it. So she starts like shouting like, Oh, like how can I get up into this tree? How can I get up in this tree? What's funny too is it, interesting is that the boys were frightened by her yelling and so they answered her question, which I was like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me narratively, but it is what it is. I didn't write the story. It is another thing they talk about in that note, and it's common, I guess, in Oni stories and Yokai stories, I guess, where the like intimidating, like scary presence like makes makes you act like you're you're because you're so afraid you'd act irrationally like that's something that oh, okay. happens a lot of the time like you make a really bad mistake and it kind of makes sense like in situations where something scary is happening like i don't know why i did that like i've had situations like that where i was like 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 in close car accidents or whatever yeah. like I, where i haven't actually got hit but i was like why did i do what i 
did. You know what I mean? Like that would have been really bad. Like if it had turned out, it could have turned out really bad, but it turned out to be okay. But it was like, that was a really dumb thing I did in the like kind of panic of the moment. Yeah. Or like, I I may be okay thinking of it that way. I'm like imagining these boys are like panicked, freaking out. And the... Yamamba is like yelling like like how can I get up up the tree how can I get up the tree and they're like really scared and so they just answer the question out of pure intimidation yeah. of like oh we're so scared we're gonna maybe if we answer the question really quickly we'll stop like getting screamed at <laughs> yeah which is like yeah she'll stop screaming at you because she's eating you and I think there's something interesting that you could see about like the relationship between like adults and children too like mm. when you're being screamed like if someone if adults asking you a question it's like again I don't know how it was in you know, the culture at the time. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's not hard to see that like kids are like, oh, I, ha- I have to answer this adult. Yeah. You know? They're asking questions, so I'm going to answer them. But anyway, so the kids, they tell her like, oh, if you cut notches in the tree, you'll be able to climb up. And so <laughs> the Yamamba goes to like the shed that's nearby and grabs a sickle and then starts cutting notches like up into the tree to act as like footholds and is climbing up now towards the boys. So again, the boys are so frightened because like this monster is getting closer and closer to them. So this is when they like stop and they pause and they pray deity of the sky, let down an iron chain or something to help us climb up. And immediately from the sky comes this like golden chain and they're able to grab onto it and start climbing up it. And then the Yamamba saw that and then says, deity of the sky, let down a chain or a rope and a rotten rope is lowered down. And I think this is really interesting just because it's like, they're appealing to this like higher deity, this higher spirit. And it's kind of making a judgment call on like, Mm-hmm. It's answering the prayer, but specifically in the way that it maybe thinks they deserve. So this rotten rope comes down and the Yamamba grabs the rope and starts to climb up into the sky. But because it's rotten, it can't hold like the weight of her <laughs> and it breaks. Yamamba's so fat, she breaks <laughs> the rope. She's trying to climb up after them. Ah, ah, that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> And she falls down to the ground and her blood gushed out and flowed onto a buckwheat plant that was nearby. And it is said that the roots of buckwheat are red now because of what happened then. And then this part I, of course, adore Mm -hmm. because the brothers, after they climb up this like golden chain that was lowered down for them, they climb up into the sky And the older brother becomes the moon and the younger brother becomes a star. But we don't find out, you know, like when the mom got home. (laughs) Like she discovers this grisly scene. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I know it's interesting enough to comment on, but there's not a lot to go uh, from here. But like how suddenly it's like, oh, this is a just so story about why buckwheat (laughs) roots are red and why there's like a moon and a star in the sky. It's like. You know, there's this like deus ex machina moment of like the boys just being rescued by a literal golden chain that falls down from the heavens, yeah. you know, and like, and then it's like, oh, by the way, like this whole thing was like, they were explaining like buck, <laughs> why buckwheat roots are red and why these stars. And it's like, to me, it doesn't yeah. make a logical, like the buckwheat thing. It's like, that's come up a couple of times, like the buckwheat flower or whatever, but it's just like, that's so, it, it's just so strange. It like comes out of nowhere to me that it, it goes off that way. Yeah. Not to mention we don't have like the that very youngest 
kid that got their like fingers eaten off and stuff. Yeah. We don't, you know, like there's no beautiful ending for that kid in this story, which is funny. And then, yeah, like you don't find out what the mom thought when she got back. But I mean- it, I guess it you can teach a lesson about, and that's why you don't let strangers into the house when your parents are gone. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's, I wanted to bring this up. That was one of the stories that I could find because it was referenced specifically in the book. Yeah. But it was referenced and it was, the thing it was showing was like how lots of times, as we discussed earlier, that the Yamamba is there to show kind of like just the danger of the mountain. Like this is a woman. She lives in the mountains. In real life, if you... Uh, are going out into the mountains, you are putting yourself in more danger than you are in your day-to-day life. Like the the mountains are are a scarier place as far as just like, I don't know, in the way that nature is too, but especially mountains like steep falls, all sorts of things um, that can happen to you. And that's one of the things, but there, there are so many varying stories. Like we said before, sometimes she's like this benevolent creature rather than like an evil one like this. And they said there's there's so many different variations that they're like, it's really hard to actually find like really concrete things that are common between them all, except for typically like her being like an old, you know, ugly woman. Yeah. But sometimes she's seen as like, oh, she's old and like, they don't, maybe they don't call her ugly, but she's like, she's old and weathered because she's been living like out in the mountains, like making the best of her, of like a really, really hard life. And in a lot of stories, it's like going out into the mountains where she lives, that's when you're in danger, when you trespass on her territory, which is the mountains. Yeah. But actually kind of, Interestingly, this story goes against this, but it was also seen that like if the Yamamba comes to you and you let her into your house, then she will actually like bless you and help you. And she'll, it says even, you know, like help you do the house chores and, you know, help all sorts of things. It's like, it's a, it's something that will bring you wealth and prosperity. Yeah. Helping you pickle your brother. Yeah. Which is disgusting. (laughs) Uh, But it's so, it's interesting. Like, uh, you know, and they say if, like, you go out into the mountains, you can get, like, the Yamamba's curse, which you get some sort of, like, illness that mm. then you can die from yeah. or some other thing. But it's, like, you know, this whole idea of the mountains, the wild, the wilderness. Yeah. There's this thing that when you go out into them, you're putting yourself in danger. But it is also a source of, like, food, of wood, of, like, yeah. like ores, like metal ores. Like, it, it can be its great source of wealth when yeah. you bring those things, like, back with you. So it's, like, interesting that it's kind of seems to be connected to that dual nature of, like, the mountains, how it can be danger but also a blessing. Yeah. Depending on the situation. Something I thought that you might like, too, is that because of this situation where there are these different, like, some people see her as this evil thing, sometimes she's, like, a benevolent thing, there's kind of this whole, like, feminist sort of situation around her like how they interpret the Yamamba because she's also like again this person that lives in the mountains on the margins of society she's like marginalized she's othered she's outcast Um, like maybe she was forced to live out there because she didn't fit in with the society like she doesn't follow the kind of typical rules about how women are supposed to behave, you know, so there's not not eating children and there is actually (laughs) a yeah not eating children what is wrong with her but there's a a Yamamba like fashion subculture. Continue in Japan, where apparently there are young women who will bleach their hair white and artificially darken the color of their skin as kind of this like you know it's an extreme cultural statement, and yeah. it's like just rebelling against again like beauty standards and standards of how women are supposed to behave and and exist in yeah in the society, which I was like. 
Katrina would like that. Yes. Because it re- that reminds me so much of uh, like the TikToks and stuff, or not TikToks, tweets that I've seen of women who are like, um, yeah, forget hot girl summer. Like I'm going to be swamp hag fall or like whatever. Yeah, and totally. Yeah. They're just like, oh yeah. Like when I was in my twenties or like when I was a child, I thought I was going to grow up and be Rapunzel, but instead now I'm the Baba Yaga. Yeah. And that's who it reminded me of a lot too. Yeah. Baba Yaga. Just this embracing of like, no, I don't want to be like a male fantasy. I want to be a male nightmare. Like I uh-huh. I don't want to be desirable. I want to chew up people <laughs> like who come into my territory. And I, I do love that. Thank you for knowing that about me. Yeah. Yeah, Mamba. <laughs> So uh, another super famous one that we'll go through real quick. There's no specific story to go along with this one, but it's one of my favorites that I actually remember. One of the few that I became aware of, like when I was in Japan and came to love, and it is the kappa, which I believe we've talked yeah. about kappa before. Kappa feel? <laughs> no, not related to that at all. But the kappa's fun. The thing that I associate with the kappa is there's like a sushi chain. It's one of those uh, like sushi on a conveyor belt. Like so you sit at the table and just like conveyor belts of sushi come by and you just like pick off what you want. It's called kappa sushi. So it's like kappa sushi. And um, they've got like all these like really cute kappa characters that decorate it. And that's something that is really common too. Like some of these yokai, they become these famous characters and they've been like commercialized and commoditized and like used in like culture like and for, you know, mascots which they also talk about yokai if you go into japan every city has a mascot and when i say a mascot i mean like a costumed figure that goes around shows up to the parades like it's like a thing and they they talk about in this book too how that is kind of related to the yokai again like you have your specific little either yokai or kami that that live in your community they're specific to you and it's kind of like a continuation of that same sort of thing some uh japanese scholars postulate postulate what kind of word am i yeah oh you highbrow master's Ooh. degree over here just just because i did some research i feel so smart <laughs> um but the kappa they are these kind of scaly slimy green creatures they are said to like have kind of like a turtle shell on their back sometimes they look like a frog or a turtle or i guess also sometimes a monkey I don't remember seeing ones that look like a monkey, but they're kind of like smaller. They're like the size of a child. Yeah. But they're super strong. And one of their characteristic features is they have like a, a like a dip in the top of their head that's kind of like a saucer. And sometimes I've, I feel like I've seen different ones. Like I feel oh, like it's sometimes it's like just a dip in the top of their skull. But I think sometimes there's kind of like a almost like a dish that like sticks out. I can't remember. That sounds familiar but i look it up look up images of kappa and you'll see they're kind of like fun um ones and there's one that too have been like made to be like kind of silly well and also in lots of the stories so there's lots of really bad things they're like mischievous and they can like do things like kill you so they're responsible for you know drownings like they'll drown Mm. horses cattle and also like children so like you know they talk about that being Again, we've talked about this before about creatures that are supposed to warn children from like swimming. Yeah, stay away uh, from water. water. That could be dangerous. Stay away or the cop is going to get you. But they can also be like really playful and they're known to be like really honest, apparently. And they'll, <laughs> they like to challenge people that are passing by to sumo wrestling matches. Perfect. So they'll like challenge you to a sumo wrestling match. And again, they're like deceptively strong because they're small like children, but they're like really, really strong. So like if you, if you wrestle it, you will. Most likely lose, but there's a trick mm-hmm. to defeating the kappa. Again, we talked about how knowing what it is, knowing how you can defeat it. Because they have this 
water bowl in their head, when it's full with water, that's what gives them their like supernatural strength. Please don't tell me you drink out of their head. No, you don't drink out of their head. But this is interesting when you think about like culture. What you have to do to defeat the kappa is you bow to the kappa beforehand and it will bow back to you because that's the respectful thing to do when you encounter like a stranger. You you bow to them, be polite, be respectful. It will bow, the, the, the water will fall out of its head and then it's weakened and you can beat it. That's hilarious. Yeah, so it's like really funny. And they're like sometimes make fun of them for like how just gross they are because like the description does sound kind of gross. And yeah. They, like some of the depictions are really, really gross looking. And one thing I thought was interesting, they talk about like that Kappa like certain foods. They like cucumbers is especially one. Okay. For whatever reason, like because it's like children are warned, like don't go swimming after eating cucumbers because if you smell like cucumbers, then the Kappa are going to be attracted and want to <laughs> come and get you. And, and drown you. And there's also like this tradition of you leave cucumbers at shrines or throw them in the water as like an offering to appease the kappa to have them not wrestle you or drown you. Oh, that's so interesting. Just because I'm imagining like if people are going to these like watery areas and like just chucking in some like cucumber. Cucumber are usually really good for even as they break down for like the critters that live in the water to eat. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, you'd you'd just be making, worst case scenario, you'd just be making friends with your local flora and fauna. Interestingly, as we've mentioned before, there are also places, it talks about in like areas where they rely on irrigation, where they rely on water, these like agricultural communities, they will celebrate kappa as like water deities rather than Mm. these like unhelpful things that you need to avoid yeah so um and in the same way even then it's like they worship them and they celebrate them and give cucumbers as offerings to them i would imagine yeah because if they neglect them or they ignore them then they might have a drought or flooding that's going to damage them so it's like again it's leans more towards the kami end of the spectrum at times so there are two more yokai that are particularly interesting and they're also super famous and the thing that's interesting about them well, there are many things that are interesting about them, but one of the things that's most interesting about them is they are actually like real animals. So there's the tanuki, which is a raccoon dog. It's a real animal like that you can go and see at like the zoo or in the wild in Japan. And then also the kitsune, which is a fox. But then there are these stories about these like real creatures, but then the very like supernatural things that they will also do which is just like really fascinating yeah because there is like a there are even more than just these two but these are the two like really big famous ones and again like the kappa the tanuki has been very commercialized and if you go around there's uh it's really funny but like outside of lots of people's houses because again like they can be considered to be like good luck and things like that there are these statues of tanuki that people like put outside their house and sometimes many times they have like very large scrotums mm-hmm. and I can't exactly remember what that is, but it's like, it's kind of like good luck. And there's like other lore that goes along with Tanuki scrotums, which is just fascinating. But Tanuki as these yokai are known to be these like supernatural tricksters. They're lots of times comical if you didn't gather that by the super large scrotums that they sometimes have. Um, And they're like into causing trouble, but they mostly won't like, they're not trying to hurt you or kill you like badly. Like they may injure you, but they're they're not trying to kill you. And so they're often like depicted as these like very like portly, you know, like a, a portly man in a raccoon dog body. I love it. 
That's my type. And they're sh- <laughs> they're shapeshifters. That's the thing. And th- I, I came across it. So one of the, car- the characteristics, the giant scrotum, they use that giant scrotum in creative ways to perform shape shifting. Uh-huh. So they can shape shift into other things. So there'll be lots of times where there are stories about different things or, or things that happen. And it'll be like, you'll think it's another yokai, but it was like, oh, it's actually a tanuki. So, and sometimes they'll like, they won't say, like they'll refer to it as a tanuki the whole time, but they're not describing anything that sounds like the raccoon dog. Mm-hmm. But like, you just know that it is a raccoon dog shape shifted into this other thing to, you know, mess with you Yeah. for whatever reason. And so, yeah, tanuki are fun. And uh, you should Google some pictures of tanuki because... You're in for a good time. There are lots of them in there, and they're really funny, and there's lots of really cute. Uh, it's one of definitely one of the cuter yokai. All right, and then there's also the kitsune, which I think I want to do more about this because there's tons of stuff that you could say about oh, yeah. kitsune that we don't have time to get into today. But it's a fox, and fox are is a common character in fables, in like European folklore. We've talked a lot about foxes, um, so I think there'd be an interesting thing that we could do there, talking about foxes, both like kitsune and then also foxes in, in other places. But similar to foxes in like fables and Western folklore, they're very, again, they're tricksters. And one of the things that Kitsune are known to do are like they'll possess people's bodies, um, sometimes for the purpose of like communicating messages. Being possessed by a Kitsune was often like an excuse or expl- explanation for people that are acting erratically and not like themselves. Something is causing them. It's like they're being uh, you know, possessed by a fox. And then there's this whole thing of foxes, kitsune, tricking human people, human men, lots of times, into marrying them. And then also, interestingly, with that, there's also like the phenomenon where you talk about like where it's raining, but it's sunny outside. Oh, yeah. In Japan, they call it like it's the, you know, the kitsune's wedding. It's a fox's wedding. Like it's, there's lots of sayings for that, but that's an interesting one that's there. So yeah, so I would ho- like to get into more kitsune lore in the future okay so we're going to get to our last two that have stories associated with them one of these is called the noparabo and this is a yokai that looks like a human at first but when you see its face you'll notice that it is completely featureless there's no eyes no nose no mouth no expression it says its face as smooth as an egg no that's so creepy very creepy and I would like to tell you a story about Enoparabo. So this is in an English language book from the early 1900s by Lufcadio Hearn, um, who was one of the people that gathered a lot of like folk tales and things from Japan to write in English and you know transport back to you know English-speaking countries, America. He was like an interesting person. We've talked about him before. I can't remember what episode it was in, uh, but this is from a book called Quaidon Stories and studies of strange things. And the thing to note about him is that he was not like a folklorist. He was not like an anthropologist. He was like a an writer. ambassador, right? He was a lot of things. So Patrick Lufcadio Hearn was Greek, but then he came to the United States, worked in the United States, and then from there went to Japan and he like uh, he married a Japanese woman. He took on a Japanese name for himself and he like just really really loved japan he was not like i said before a anthropologist folklorist he was like a writer a creative writer so he focused more on kind of like that element and for that reason and also with one of the things that's interesting he's been very criticized for kind of like 
idealizing Japan and like thinking Japan is just like this wonderful, you know, like by Japanese uh, critics, like being like, he's like way too like, like sentimental and he comes at it from like a a weird angle. So it's like hard to, you know, say what is accurate to like the Japanese culture and people of the time and in what's the his things that he's writing. idealized version of what Japan is. Exactly. And one of the things that's weird about this, so this is from his book, Kwaidan, and the title of this story is Mujina, which is a different type of yokai. Like there is a yokai called the Mujina that is nothing like the one that's in this story. So it's interesting because it calls it by the wrong name this whole time. And like, we don't know how this happened. So the story goes that the last man who saw this it says Mujina, but it actually is in Oparabo, was out one night, late at night, walking around. And he saw a woman crouching down by, it says the moat, so a moat, some water, all alone, and she was crying. And he was afraid with her crying there, very emotional, near this body of water, that she was there to drown herself. So he was trying to stop her, so he went up and he offered her, like, whatever assistance he could have. He tried to console her. And, you know, she's like, she seemed like this, like, very this like slight and graceful person. She was well, well dressed. Her hair was well done. Like she's like, she looked like she came from like a good wealthy kind of a, a family. She was put together. And so, you know, it wasn't like immediately obvious, like why is she yeah. wanting to drown herself? And so again, he's offering, um, he's like, I'd be happy to help you. What's wrong? Please don't cry. And he was really trying to help her. Apparently he was a, a very kind man. He meant it, but she continued to cry and she was hiding her face from him the whole time. He wouldn't let her, uh, wouldn't let him see her face. And so he's talking to her. He's like, hey, please listen, listen. Like, you shouldn't be here. Don't cry. Like, it's so late at night. This is not a good place for you to be. And he's like, please just tell me how I can help you. Um, But she stood up and she turned her back to him and just continued to cry. And so he like puts his hand on her shoulder. And he's like, okay, listen, just, just turn around. Look at me. Like, let me talk to you for a second so I can help you. And at that, this woman turned around, dropped her sleeve from her face that she'd been holding it crying, stroked her face with her hand. And as she did that, and her hand moved away from her face, the man saw that she had no eyes or nose mm. or mouth. Mm. And he screamed and ran away. Yeah, for real. And so he screamed and he ran and he ran like anyone should if they see some faceless person <laughs> staring at them <laughs> in the middle of the night. It says he didn't dare look back. He just kept running and running. He finally saw a lantern. And it was like this tiny little lantern that's so far away that it looked like the gleam of a firefly. But he ran straight towards that. And it was apparently the lantern of like a, a soba seller, like a someone that would like go around selling soba, soba noodles, noodles which are yeah. delicious. And who had like set down his stuff at the stand by the side of the road. And that's why, you know, he had this lantern there. So this guy was so relieved to have like found another human being. <laughs> And being able to rest, and he was like, and I'm sure the soba uh, that he could probably get and eat after, you know, burning up all the glycogen in his muscles from running so hard, uh, have a little rest. And so he sat himself down at the feet of this soba seller and was just like crying out to him like, oh my gosh, oh no, Ah, still freaked out from the experience. And the soba seller was like, what's going on? What happened? Did somebody hurt you? What's happening? What's happening? The guy's like, no, nobody hurt me. Oh, man, it was just... And he starts screaming again. Jeez. And the soba soba salesman is like... Soba salesman? <laughs> the soba man. I'm pretty sure that's what it actually says in one of these parts. Yeah. They call him the soba man. The soba man kind of like... Here, he's like, oh, nobody hurt you. He's like, oh, they just scared you. And he's like, was it robbers? And the guy was like, no, no, it wasn't robbers. It was... I saw this woman down by the moat, and she showed me 
oh my gosh, it's so scary. I can't even tell you what she showed me. It, it was so scary. And so the sober man says, oh, was it anything like this that she showed no. you? And he strokes his own face, which therewith became like unto an egg. Ah. And simultaneously, the light went out. End scene. Creepy. Which I love that because so creepy. It sounds like, you know, urban legend material. Great little scary story for us as we approach Halloween. And this is kind of one of the iconic uh, stories about the Noparabo, apparently. And interestingly, too, like, Livcati O'Hearn's stuff wrote in English was translated and back, taken back to Japan, you know, translated in Japanese. And so it did become part of, you know, like, it's, it's known in Japan. It's yeah. not like it's just we, what we hear from over here. It's like people are aware of, of these stories and his versions of them. And I'm now seeing in my notes, Mujina is another creature. It's kind of like a tanuki that has a reputation for, you know, shape-shifting and causing mischief. And that's what he called his story. And he said that it was a Mujina this whole time. And maybe, just maybe, it is a shapeshifter shape-shifting himself into this thing that looks like, you know, someone with no face to scare this guy to death. No. Maybe not literally to death. But, you know what I mean? It does kind of sound like it's the same creature in both of these situations. That yeah. definitely sounds like... I mean, it could be interpreted either way. It could be like, oh, I'm going to get you. And so, like, I, I lured you here when you were running away from me because I knew you'd think that you were safe. Or it is something that, like, is just a total prank because that is kind of funny. It's, there's something very punchline-y about, like, <laughs> did it look like this? <laughs> <laughs> and also, some people may know if you are, you know, a, an anime fan in Spirited Away, there is a character called No-Face. Not really quite the same as this, but some people think that it probably was inspired by... You know, this no-faced yokai. Yeah. Okay, last one that we're going to talk about today. And this one I wanted to touch on because it is a very humanoid, human-like yokai. Um, and there are lots of stories about this. It's called Yuki-ona, which means snow woman. And I also want to talk about it because it sounds very familiar to some other kind of like urban legend type stories in some ways that we have um, here in the West. Although also very different. So... The Yuki Ona or Snow Woman is a tale that there are is definitely a type and like in Japanese stories, but also in other stories that we have talked about on this very podcast about marriage to supernatural women, supernatural wives who disappear. And with a title like Snow Woman, I think you might have a little bit of an idea about how this person disappears, but we don't want to spoil it for you. So we've got two stories that we're going to share with you. Katrina is going to start off by telling one it's very short, and then I'll tell uh, another one after we talk just a little bit about, a little more about the Yuki Ona. Awesome. So yeah, this uh, story is called The Snow Wife, and it is so cute and short. Anyway, so there was once a young man who was a bachelor Poor guy out there uh, in the snow all winter long by himself. Batching it up. <laughs> so this one winter night, there was a really, really heavy snowstorm. And he thought he heard someone outside and, you know, obviously didn't want to leave them out in this heavy snowstorm. And so he opened up his door to see if somebody was outside. And he found that there was a young woman that had fallen just uh, into a heap right by his door. And being a good person, even though he had never seen her before, didn't know who this woman was, he helped her up and was like, oh, what's the matter? Are you okay? And he could see that she was a very beautiful young woman. And so it says just really quickly, he took her as his bride, which I'm like, well, hopefully after she regained consciousness and was feeling a little better. <laughs> 
Hopefully. Yeah. Give it a minute. But it says soon that she became well, she got better, and they were living happily together as spring was approaching. But as the weather started to warm up, she started to get thinner and thinner and like in really poor health. And one day, the man invited some of his friends over to meet his new wife and they you know were sitting around talking eating drinking sake which i was like oh perfect and the man like called out to his wife and she didn't answer like there was no reply and so he got up to go and check the rest of the house and he went over by the kitchen stove and there was nothing but his wife's kimono lying in a pool of water some people are worth melting for (laughs) just kidding (laughs) that has no relation It reminded me of the Russian story of the snow child. Yeah. Where she like jumped over a bonfire. The town was having like a bonfire night and she jumped over it and then just evaporated. Yeah. And this is one of those tales that I mentioned earlier that in some of these collections, like the they're put really early in the thing and there's like no explanation. This is one of those. Like it was there, the yokai was there kind of towards the front of the collection and it was like, there was no explanation needed. Like you saw this snowy white woman and you knew who it was and the story behind it. And the commonality of these tales is very similar to what you say, what you're saying. You know, they marry a human and a non-human marry and the marriage ends, you know, by accident often uh, because the husband breaks a promise that he made to the wife. And because of breaking that promise, she returns to her true form, which causes her to melt and disappear, which it doesn't go into like analyzing that a lot in the stuff that I saw here, but it does seem like there's a lot of interesting things that you can gather from that. Yeah. Just as far as like, you're like entering to a marriage, but you're like, if you break a promise and your wife disappears, you know, there's like reasons for that. Yep. Like she leaves because she's like, doesn't want to be around you anymore. Or, you know, in the same thing in your story, it's like, she looked like she was like getting sicker and like withering away. There's this whole thing of like, you marry someone and they're like such a great match for you. You have such a good life, but you know, they get sick and then they slowly wither away and they get taken from you when you weren't expecting it. You know, that doesn't necessarily have to do with like breaking a promise, but you know, that's like another thing that can and does happen. Yeah. And so like, you know, it's easy to see how stories like this would resonate with people at the very least or potentially come into uh you know into being and so the story that you shared that was from the folktales of japan the same book that we referenced earlier with your tale of the yamamba and so our friend lafcadio hearn also had a version of the yukiona story that he wrote down and again kind of put embellishments on and they they identified some areas where he probably took a lot of influence from european stories where he makes the well i'll just read the story and then we can talk about it because i don't want to spoil anything for you so here we go so there was there's an old man named mosaku and he had an apprentice whose name was minokichi who was 18 years old and they went together into the forest that was five miles away from their village and on the way to the forest there's a river that they had to cross and a ferry and often in the past they had built a bridge across this part where the ferry was to take them across but it got you know, carried away every time in a flood. And so like they could not build a bridge there that was strong enough to last. So they had to take the ferry. So one time when Mosaku and Minokichi were on their way back from the forest, there was a huge snowstorm that overtook them. They reached the ferry, but the boatman had gone and his boat was left on the other side of the river. It's snowing like crazy, freezing cold. 
it was no day for swimming, it says, which Hilarious. I tend to agree with them there. And so these men who were woodcutters, why they were going into the forest to cut wood and bring it back to sell, took shelter in the ferryman's hut, considering themselves very lucky to have found any shelter at all in this like blizzard. But there wasn't any place in the hut to make a fire. There was like nothing in there. It was super small. It was a two mat hut, which I, there's a, a footnote that says like, that's means there's a floor space of about six square feet. And it's like two to the size of two tatami mats. Yeah. And there was only one door and one window. So they closed the door, made sure the window was shut and they went down to sleep just with their like, you know, raincoats and whatever over them. They didn't feel cold at first. They thought the storm would be over. Um, and the old man fell asleep, but Minokichi stayed awake for a long time and he was kind of scared of the wind and the sound of the snow sloshing up against the door, the sound of the river, you know, roaring by and the hut like swaying and creaking in this wind. Yeah. It was a terrible storm and it was scaring the crap out of it. And it was getting colder and colder and colder. And so he started shivering under his raincoat. But eventually, despite the cold, he also fell asleep and he was awakened by. Uh, snow falling onto his face and the door of the hut had been opened like forced open it says and by the the light reflecting off of the snow he saw a woman standing in the room and she was dressed all in white and she was standing over masaku the old man and blowing her breath on him and it's like it looked like this white smoke that was covering him yeah and then she turned to minokichi the apprentice stooped over him and he tried to yell, but he found he couldn't make any sound. And the woman bent down over him lower and lower and lower until her face was almost touching his. And he saw that she was just super beautiful, but the look in her eyes made him afraid. And for a little while, she just continued to look at him like with her, their faces almost touching. And then finally she smiled and whispered to him, I intended to treat you like the other man. Which it's like sounding like, did she kill that? Yeah. Did she freeze him to death? But she said, I cannot help feeling some pity for you because you're so young. You're a pretty boy, Minokichi, and I will not hurt you now. But if you ever tell anybody, even your own mother, about what you've seen this night, I shall know it and then I will kill you. Remember what I say. And with that, she turned around and left back through the doorway. And suddenly he was able to move again. He got up, looked around, and he could see the woman nowhere. All he could see was snow that was like blowing furiously into the side of the hut. So he closed the the door again and like shoved some pieces of wood up against the door to keep it closed. And he was like, oh, how did the wind blow this thing open? He thinking he must have been dreaming. There's no way I actually saw this, you know, woman in white in this room. But he was like, I don't know. It felt pretty real. So he wasn't really sure. And so after securing the door, he calls to the old man and he was scared because the old man didn't answer him. Yeah. So he put his hand out and he touched Masaku's face and found that it was ice. Yeah. And Masaku was dead. And so by dawn, the storm was over. The ferryman returned and found Minokichi lying there next to the frozen body of Masaku. You know, the ferryman took care of them, took him back across, you know, the river, kind of took care of him, thinking that he was he might get sick from the effects of the cold yeah. for that night. Um, and also, you know, he was like pretty shooken up by the fact that his mentor had died, yeah. but he didn't tell the ferryman anything about the woman in white. So he spent some time at home recovering. And once he was feeling better, he started going back into the forest and then coming back with his bundles of wood to sell again. So the next year in the winter, as he was on his way home, he passed a girl on the side of the road who was happening to go the same way. And she was like very tall, 
very slim, very good looking. And she answered Minokichi's like greeting. He's like, like oh, saying, you know, greeted yeah. her as he passed. Oh, yeah. And he said that her voice was as pleasant to the ear as the voice of a songbird. And so he walked alongside her for a little bit and they began to talk. And she said that her name was Oyuki. And Yuki means snow. And it's actually a very common name even today in Japan. Yeah. Yuki. And so she's telling that she had lost both of her parents. She was on her way to Edo where she was hoping to stay with some family who were kind of poor um, and find her some work as a servant. And Minokichi soon felt charmed by this strange girl. And he was more and more charmed the more and more that he looked at her. The more he looked at her, the better she, the, the handsomer she appeared to look. And so he asked whether or not she was married. And she said, no, I'm not. And then she asked Minokichi if he was married or if he was, you know, pledged to marry someone. And he told her that he had, you know, his widowed mother to support, but he had not yet married somebody as he was still very young, 18, 19 years old. So after this conversation, they continued walking for a little while without speaking. And this I thought was interesting. It says, but as the proverb declares, and it says this sentence in Japanese, when the wish is there, the eyes can say as much as the mouth. And so by the time they reached the village, they were both in love with one another. And Minokichi invited Oyuki to come and rest at his house. So she was a little hesitant at first, a little shy, but she went there with him, met the mother uh, who prepared a warm meal for them. And Oyuki was behaving so well that Minokichi's mother was like obsessed with her. He's like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. He, she convinced her to stay with them for a little longer, to not go on to Edo yet. Of course, the natural end of that matter was that Oyuki never went to Edo at all. Mm-hmm. She remained in the house as an honorable daughter-in-law. So they got married. Yeah. Congratulations to them. <laughs> and Oyuki turned out to be a really good daughter-in-law, it says, and presumably a wife. But after about five years, Minokichi's Mother died, and the last words that she said were words of affection of pra- and praise for the wife of her son. So the very last word she was saying was like these affectionate words towards Oyuki. And Oyuki had 10 children with Minokichi, boys and girls. Mm. And then all of them were handsome children and of very fair skin, like their mother. Yeah, snow white, I bet. Snow white. And all the people around thought Oyuki was great. They're like, not only great, but she's like, she's great. And she's like way different than all of us. She's way better than all of us. But it says too, like after even having 10 children, that she still looked like just incredibly young, incredibly beautiful, as fresh as on the day when she'd first come into the village. However, one night after the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by some lamplight and Minokichi was watching her. And he said to her that to see her there sewing with the light of that lantern here, her face reminded him of something strange he'd seen when he was 18 years old. Mm. He says that he saw someone just as beautiful and white as she is. He's like, in fact, she looked a lot like you. And without lifting her eyes from her work, Oyuki responded, it's like, oh, tell me, where did you see this woman? And so Minokichi told her about that night in the ferryman's hut, about the white woman that stood above him, smiling and whispering, and about the death of his mentor, Mosaku. And he said... Asleep or awake, that was the only time that I saw a being as beautiful as you. And he goes on to say, you know, of course, she wasn't human. I was terrified of her. But, like, her skin was so white. It's like, and I never knew, ever since I saw that, whether that was a dream or whether that was actually, like, the woman of the snow that I saw. And at this, Oyuki flings down her sewing kit, stands up above Minokichi, and starts yelling into his face. And she's like, it was me. Like, it was me. And I told you that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it. If it weren't for the kids that were asleep right here, I would kill you right now. 
It's like, you better take very, very good care of that because if they ever have a reason to complain to you, I will treat you as you deserve, which I think she means killing. Yeah. And so she yelled and yelled. And as she yelled, her voice became thin like a crying of wind. And then she melted into a bright white mist that spired to the roof beams and shuddered away through the smoke hole. Never again was she seen. Yipes. That was a delightful story. Yeah, it was a, it was a good story. And it, it caught the gist of a lot of what these uh, snow stories are, especially this was one where the example was, you know, the marriage came to an end because of a broken promise of the husband, specifically the promise not to tell anyone about the snow woman that he had seen. And again, it was from Lafcadio O'Hearn who put a lot more emphasis on the writing and the storytelling, um, which, it, you know, really worked for this, this version of the story. And it's one that I like. And it's, and you know, for that reason, especially today, it's one of the, the most well-known versions of the story of Yukiona or the snow woman. Okay, so we've talked a lot about yokai today. You know, yokai in Japan and some of the things that influence them, some of the natural phenomena, some of the culture, some of the, you know, all of these elements specific to Japan that influence these specific stories. But as we've also talked about with numerous of these yokai that we mentioned, you know, they are in some ways similar to, to other creatures that we hear about in folklore across the globe. And other cultures have these creatures or these phenomena that are very specific to them that come about. And so it's not something that is particular to Japan that these creatures exist. Um, it's just the particular creatures and the way that they may come about and express themselves in this instance is specific to Japan, just as it's specific to each and every culture that comes up with these stories. Because we all have to find ways to explain these mysterious, you know, like phenomena that happen to us in our lives. Explain the unexplainable. Yeah find words for the things that don't have words that we can't find the words for. And so Michael Dylan Foster writes this. Most likely in every part of the globe, human beings have shaped mysterious and fearful phenomena into monsters and spirits as a way of making sense and meaning of their experiences. But the particular shapes such monsters and spirits assume are anything but universal. They're sculpted by the distinct cultures and societies in which they emerge, evolving through specific historical moments and with the changing desires and challenges of the people who tell their tales. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar Um, this is a side note to you, Katrina, but so in this, the kappa section, please tell me they, about farting in their faces to repel them. Cause I just saw a picture that shook me to my core, <laughs> but there is, so there are weird stories about like, there's one story about like a kappa that was like in an outhouse that like reached up to like grab a, like stroke a woman's butt <laughs> while she's using the toilet. <laughs> um, they also, the, the butthole eyeball kappa uh-huh or not kappa yokai that i've been like referencing they reference in the section on kappa because 
there's, you know, that I, the butthole eyeball likes to stroke human buttocks as well. I've never pegged you for a butthole fanatic. 